You can open up your copy of the Bible if you have one. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 and into chapter 7 a little bit this morning. So if you want to go ahead and, and get to that, I will be there here in just a few minutes. But I want to say a few things um, before we turn our attention to that. Uh, one is just, as I try to every Sunday, say a welcome to you if you're a guest with us, uh, especially if it's your very first time uh, being here on a Sunday to worship with us. We're grateful that you're here. And uh, we hope that this has been already and will be an encouraging time uh, that the Lord meets with you, that, that he ministers to you uh, through the word, through songs, through us, uh, through our conversations with you. Uh, if you live here locally and you either aren't a Christian or you don't have a church home, uh, we would love especially to get to know you, uh, to help you uh, get to know the Lord himself, but also to see if this may be a, a church home where you could plant yourself and, and be rooted in the days ahead. Uh, if you could help us do that rather than just being random and us hoping it happens by uh, filling out a connection card. You can do it digitally, follow that QR code. It's on the back of your uh, program as well. Or you could fill out that paper copy on the back of the program, uh, take it with you out in the lobby, into the lobby later, and take a left out there. There'll be a counter where some folks will receive that. We'd love to start conversation with you, uh, but we will follow up with you either way. So that was one thing. Another I just wanted to note um, is an event that's coming up uh, about a month from now on Saturday, March 2nd, I believe, from 2 to 5 in the afternoon. I want to take a, a moment to explain what this is. Uh, we, I couldn't think of a great name for it. I'm calling it, it's kind of a mouthful to say, but exploring the gift of prophecy. Uh, what that is, it's going to be a three-hour uh, gathering here in this room primarily, 2 to 5. Uh, our church, if you've been around very long, you probably know this. If you're new, I uh, want you to know this. We would be what people would label a continuationist church as far as our doctrine, our practice. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit that were given uh, in the New Testament age continue today. And one of those that the Apostle Paul featured very prominently and said Christians and churches should desire and practice is this gift of prophecy. And so, But that is a controversial gift. It can be confusing. It can be scary. It can be misused in churches or by individuals. But it's a a good gift of the Spirit. And so we're wanting to take that afternoon, we've done things like this before, but want to do this again, to do a little bit of teaching on that subject, uh, to, uh, and to do some time of praying and hopefully ministry, even potentially of that gift uh, to people. And so toward that end, we've invited a group, there's going to be about seven or eight people, some brothers and sisters uh, from a sister church in our denomination called Covenant Fellowship. It's out near Philadelphia. Uh, it's a wonderful church. Uh, they have uh, a sizable ministry there, but one of their ministries is they have a team of men and women who seem like they have prophetic gifting, that not like it's just automatic, they can just do it when they want, but men and women who God has used uh, over the years in the life of their church to, to take words that are given by the spirit and to share those with individuals or share with the collective church as a means of encouragement and edification, building up of the body. And so we've invited seven or eight of them to come that afternoon and they're going to stay into Sunday morning as well. Uh, we're going to have one of, one of them as one of their pastors. Uh, his name's Mark Prater. He's a native Hoosier. We've had him here before uh, years ago. Uh, but he's going to do a little bit of teaching from 1 Corinthians 14 at the start of that afternoon about why we should eagerly desire uh, this gift. Why it should be something that we prayerfully pursue even. Uh, and then we're going to have a time of Q&A uh, where some of those men and women, we can ask questions of them. Hey, what does this actually look like in the life of you as an individual or in the life of the church? Where, where have you, how have you seen it used by the Spirit to minister and to build people up? And then at the end of it, of the last time, and this is the part we don't know exactly what shape it'll take, uh, we're going to see if they might have things that they want to share with us, whether it's collectively as a gathering or if it may be as we gather together that afternoon that the Spirit lays a upon their hearts, things to share with particular 
particular individuals that are there. Not like bizarre, strange, freaky things, but words of encouragement or consolation that even in that moment that the Spirit might want to share with people. And our hope in that is to give a tangible a, a taste, a practical taste or experience of what this gift can be like. Um, that it doesn't have to be misused. It doesn't have to be strange. That it can be a, a deep personal ministry of the Spirit uh, to, to build us up in our faith. And so uh, that's going to be from 2 to 5. And then they'll stick around afterwards and we'd love to talk to people. Uh, so I would encourage you, wherever you are on the spectrum of this, to try to prioritize coming to that. We're trying to prioritize it for our church folks. It's not like something we're advertising out in the community. Uh, we really want it to be something that, that helps us grow as a church, uh, wanting to grow in our desire for this gift, our understanding of it, our use of it uh, as a church family. So whether you are new to this uh, and you just a blank slate, I don't know what to think, or whether you are skeptical and you, you're nervous about it or fearful of it even, I'd encourage you to come. Or whether you're gung-ho and excited about it and, and you've experienced things like this before, I would encourage you to come. Or potentially, maybe especially if this is you, if you've been in churches before where you've seen this be misused, where you've seen it uh, distorted, would encourage you to come and hear teaching and hopefully see practice of it uh, that is biblical and faithful and honoring to Jesus. So that's going to be 2 to 5 on uh, March the 2nd here in this room. You don't need to RSVP or anything, you just show up to it, uh, but 2 to 5 on March the 2nd. So we'll try to uh, keep spreading the word about that, but I would encourage you to mark that on your diary, as Ben would say, or on your calendar. Uh, put that in there March the 2nd uh, in the afternoon 2 to 5 alright we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 and get into the first paragraph of chapter 7 uh, this morning and as I was preparing for this uh, if you don't know where we're at in the story we're about to as we go through this uh book of the Bible, this first book of the Bible, we're about to hit the story of the flood, uh, this famous story of, of Noah and the ark. And so my mind, as I was preparing this, started uh, thinking or even reading up a little bit about what some of the greatest sea rescues have been in the history of humanity. And there's probably many we just don't know of uh, that have taken place. But some that I did know, just that are notable, that you've probably heard of, some great sea rescues in human history. Uh, just publicity-wise, in our day and age, uh, the rescuing of people from the Titanic uh, is a, a major one back in 1912. 706 people uh, were saved out of the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. Uh, one that would be, I would mark for just bravery that I think is unmatched. You could look up this story sometime. Uh, it's been uh, detailed, documented in a, in a movie, even in a book called The Finest Hours. It, was, it happened back in 1952 off the coast of Cape Cod. There was this uh, oil rig named the Pendleton uh, that just got ripped into, and it just waves, this nor'easter that was huge and destructive, uh, but there were men out there dying, and this little uh, lifeboat from the Coast Guard went out, and these four men risked their own life to go into this unlikely scenario, and they saved 32 men uh, from that ship and brought them back. Uh, if you just think of massive scale of a boat rescue, the biggest one that I could hear of, which maybe you don't even know about, actually happened on September the 11th of 2001, uh, on that tragic day in our country where those towers uh, were hit and fell. There was on Manhattan, on that island, there was hundreds of thousands of people essentially just trapped, unable to get out. And there was this uh, massive uh, evacuation plan where all these private boats uh, came together, and people have called it the great boat lift uh, there was 
almost a half million people uh, that day. The, the just individually, as these boats came, uh, were taken off of Manhattan. And then the, the biggest stakes ever, I would say, of a boat rescue uh, happened at Dunkirk, just at the start of World War II. Uh, it's been documented in a movie. Uh, but the, near the start of World War II, there was 330,000 or so uh, uh, British and French troops that were essentially just uh, cornered uh, on this uh, shore in France. And uh, over 330,000 people were rescued, some by these big uh, boats that were able to come in, but then some by these private boats. But uh, if they would not have been rescued, there would have been hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed. World War II may have uh, ended very differently, may have ended very abruptly. Uh, So there's been some great sea rescues in history, but I would say all of those, and any that you're aware of, uh, out of all of those, there's one sea rescue that stands far above the rest in human history. Uh, that's not make-believe, that's not uh, just some cute cartoonish story like we sometimes make it out for nursery walls. Uh, it's the story that we often call Noah's Ark, uh, the story of the great flood that God brought upon the earth. And this story that we're about to enter into this morning, and we're going to take a couple weeks to get through it, it stands as a monument in ancient history uh, that I think God put there to be remembered, uh, painfully remembered, but, but mercifully remembered by all human beings that would follow, including us, uh, to teach us not just about Noah, to teach us not just about Noah's day, but to even teach us ongoingly in history uh, about our God, about our predicament, and about our rescue that he's willing and able to provide for us. And so we're going to start into this story this morning. I'm going to start here in a moment at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, uh, that we left off at verse 8 last week. And I'm going to go down into chapter 7, uh, down to chapter 7, verse Um, But where are we at in the story? If you haven't been with us, that's okay. You may be familiar with Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. We started at the very beginning a couple months ago, and we were slowly working our way through it. Uh, We've seen God create the universe, which was just glorious to contemplate and to see. Uh, We've seen the first humans rebel against him, right? We've seen God expel them from the garden uh, that they were created to live in. We've seen uh, their descendants then, uh, just these uh, awful things. We saw their sons, Cain, their son Cain kill one of their sons, Abel. We saw then these genealogies that were recorded where their descendants multiply in the earth, but sin multiplies as well. Right? And last Sunday, uh, we saw this painful text about God telling, or God saying, uh, that, about how he saw the wickedness that was so pervasive even in the human heart and present in the world, and how he was going to blot out mankind. And so, uh, but we ended with a glorious note, verse 8, where it said that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so uh, what we're going to see this morning is how this story starts to play out. How can both of those be true? That God says, I'm going to blot out humanity, but Noah finds my favor. Like, how does that come together in the story of the flood? So you'll see in the first verse I read, this is a start of a new section in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis's structure, we use chapters, these big numbers in there. But Genesis, Moses, he used these hangers of saying, these are the generations of dot, dot, dot. And that was like his new section that he was starting uh, in his book of the Bible. And so we're going to see one of those today. This is the start of a new section. It's the story of Noah and of his children of this great flood. So I'm going to read this for us. We've been doing this the last several weeks. After I read it, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. 
because it is, right? And if you believe that, I would encourage you to say, thanks be to God. And so tuck that away. Thanks be to God uh, can be how you respond if you believe that to be so. But Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continued his record of early humanity this way. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then, Lord, then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to summarize uh, this message from this text this way. Uh, it's a simple one. Uh, but I, I've been praying that it would truly land on us, uh, each of us and us collectively is this, that God's people must be prepared for the day of God's judgment. God's people must be prepared for the day of God's judgment. Uh, this story, this uh, part of the story is detailing the rescue plan. Uh, water hasn't yet started to fall from the clouds. Uh, now this, it ends with Noah and his family starting to go onto the boat. And we'll uh, continue the story next Sunday, uh, Lord willing. But I, I want to uh, start by starting at the beginning and seeing how uh, this 
we're going to have three points. The first one's going to be how God devises this rescue plan. Uh, let's see the reality that God is the one devising it. He's the one coming up with it. He's the one initiating it. And you see that in the first handful of verses, verses 9 through 12, how this text begins, this new section of Genesis. There's some material here that's repeated from what we've already read, uh, but in this new section it's stated again. Uh, but we see that God is the one devising this rescue plan. Uh, much of this passage today is God speaking, right? It, it's a record of his actual words to Noah uh, as, as the story begins. So a lot of it is, it's almost like dialogue, but it's really just one side of a dialogue. You don't hear Noah's voice in here. Actually, you don't ever hear it until after the flood. Uh, but we hear God's perspective. We hear what his estimation of things is, what his commands are, right? Uh, but, and prior to uh, God speaking to Noah, which is the dominant part of this text as an aside I will probably at some point in this sermon say Moses on accident instead of Noah I constantly do that so just assume if I misspeak and say Moses give me the benefit of the doubt and know that I'm talking about Noah Uh, but before God speaks to Noah in this text uh, we see some of his own thoughts some of how he sees things how how he perceives things we see what led up to this communication, what led up to this plan being implemented. And so we're given at the beginning of today's text a little glimpse, a, a short summary of what God saw in Noah, how God viewed Noah uh, in his day and in his life. And what we see recorded is that uh, it says these are the generations of Noah, and then there's a couple descriptors of him, right, of how God sees him, that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. Right? So those, that's three, quite the statement, right? That, that he was righteous, that he was blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. And there's much that could be said about that. Uh, it is a, a huge statement to be made by him in stark contrast with everybody else, it seems, uh, who was alive in his day. But I, I think what we can see at minimum there is that there was this private communion with God that Noah had, that he walked with him, right? This private communion that gave rise to public conduct that honored the Lord, right? That, that he was righteous in the sight of God, but he's blameless even before others. That, that he would have been known, I believe, as a man of integrity, as a man who believed in God, a man who trusted him, a, a man who was seeking to live his life in ways that honored the Lord. I mentioned this last Sunday, but I'll just mention it again. When we read that Noah was a righteous man, we should not read that as saying Noah was perfectly righteous uh, in the way that the Apostle Paul might be writing when he writes the New Testament, when he's talking about righteous. But it's more describing his way of life, that, that he was a man of integrity and obedience. Those were the things that were marking his life. But the rain would fall down upon Noah as well. He needed the ark as well, right? Um, so, but he's seen as righteous and blameless. But then we're told pretty quickly, as we get into verse 11, we're also told what, how God saw Noah's contemporaries, uh, the way that he saw them, what he saw to be true in their life. And the word that is used a few times here in verses 11 and following is this word, corruption. We see it at least three times here, right? That it's, it's like a self-inflicted corruption, right? Verse 12 says that God saw the earth and it was corrupt, right? And then he says that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So it's not just something that like seeped in somehow passively, but they self-corrupted. They, they were the ones who were flying in the face of God, disobeying him. They were self-inflicting this corruption. But, and we see that it was a universal corruption, right? It was corrupt for 
all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It wasn't just some of the people, it was all of the people were, were self-corrupting. They were defying God. They were, were going against him and his commands, his way of life. And what particularly marks them, and this may strike us as strange, but what the, the form of corruption that's really emphasized here, it's mentioned at least two times in today's text, is violence. That's what God sees as he looks out upon the world, as he is watching these human creatures, as he sees a lot of violence. He even says in verse 11 that it was filled with violence, right? Cain, his story of murder, and Lamech, who we saw, who was glorying in his murder, these weren't exceptions. Apparently, this was widespread. There was aggression. There was violence amongst humans. Uh, It was filled, the earth was filled with violence, And all this fits with what we saw last week of of God seeing wickedness on the earth. That there's this corruption, this breaking of God's design, this violence against one another. But what we see is that God is the one then who devises this plan to rescue. He's the one who comes up with this plan to redeem, to, to, to work towards fixing the problems that are at hand, right? God devises a plan, we see in, the, in today's text and through this whole story of Noah and the ark, we see that God devises a plan to do two things, both to destroy and to rescue, It is a rescue plan, but it's more than that. He's the one who's devising the plan to destroy and the plan to rescue, right? I was thinking of the phrase rescue plan. That's what I even called the sermon this morning. Most rescues are actually not planned, right? Uh, Most rescues are you come up on an accident that you didn't know was going to be there, and you have courage and bravery, and you just do what you need to do. You're not thinking. You're just acting, right? But there's sometimes that the complexity of a situation and the, the time available, uh, allow, it either necessitates or allows for an actual plan to be developed where, where you can think and make decisions about what needs to be done, how it can be done, when it should be done, who should do it, those sorts of things. And what we see here is that type of plan. God is not just reacting uh, impulsively. We see that God is deliberate. God has thought this through, so to speak, to use our, our human terms. He, he even, the first thing when he talks to Noah, the first thing he says, out of his uh, divine mouth is, in verse 13, is, I have determined, right? I have determined to do this. Like, it, it is my plan, it is my choice, this is what I'm about to do. Like, I've, I've seen the situation, this is what I'm going to do, both bringing destruction, but also bringing rescue. I have determined, God says. This is important for us to see that God always, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to rescue of his people, he is the initiator and the designer of the rescue, right? It's not just something they come up with themselves and then God kind of rubber stamps. God is the one who initiates the rescue plan. It's his idea. He's the one who brings it to bear, right? Uh, God is, he's not talked into this by anybody, right? Like there's nobody saying like, hey God, maybe you should do something about this or, or maybe you should come up with, nobody's presenting ideas and God's choosing amongst them, right? It's his idea, right? And also it's not as if God is just anticipating in this world that he's passively involved in that there's gonna be this massive flood and he just needs to figure out a way to get some people out of it, right? The flood is his idea as much as the ark is his idea. Right? He's the one who is bringing both. He is pledging that the flood will come. Right? Not just responding to it. He is pledging, I will be the one who brings it, but I also will be the one who gives a way of escape. 
I'll be the one who gives rescue through it. If you read this text carefully, you will notice again and again and again, first person singular pronouns. I have determined. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. God is saying, this is my idea. This is my plan. I am implementing it. I am the initiator here. And the general shape of it, and we'll see him communicate specifics of it, the general shape of it, we're largely familiar with it, and the horror of it, I think, doesn't really set into us, is that God is going to bring a great flood upon the earth to kill its inhabitants. God is the one who's going to do that. He's going to kill all the inhabitants of land and air except those who are on this ark. That is the plan. That is God's idea. It is a horrific reset of sorts of the earth and of the human race and some people I, I could imagine if there's skeptics in the room or people you may engage with I, I could imagine them thinking well isn't that great of God like he's the one who brings the flood and then he brings the boat wow thanks like you didn't have to bring the flood you, you're the one whose idea it is and then you're going to rescue people through it thanks a lot God like, why couldn't you just sit on your hands? Why couldn't you come up with some other way? There's a, a, an idea some people have of, like, this happens in real life sometimes with, like, an arsonist firefighter. I was talking to somebody about this this week where people will set fires. People really do this. will set fires, and then they'll set the story up where they're the one who stumbles upon it, and they, res- they come to the rescue. Like, they're the one who is destroying, but they want the glory of being the one who saves. And so they set up this fake story uh, to be the rescuer. And I could see people thinking this is like God doing that in a divine way. God saying, I'm going to destroy you, but I'll save you. Aren't I so nice? But may we never read the scriptures this way. May we never bring God down to our level. God is not just some demented character in a story. He is not corrupt, right? He he is not just trying to manipulate things and, and mess with people. God is the creator of the universe who deserves obedience, who deserves allegiance, who deserves love, and was receiving none of that from his people. They were taking this earth that he created. He wasn't just toying with innocent people and bringing judgment upon innocent people. They were corrupted. They were, they were destroying the earth that he made and destroying each other. And God is grieved, we saw last Sunday. He's grieved to the heart. And the judgment is coming one way or the other, right? The glorious thing is that God devises a plan for rescue, that God says, I will show mercy, not pure justice, but I will also show mercy, right? Judgment is deserved at God's hand, but grace is shown, right? Grace flows from God's heart in the story. And so this is as well with our rescue. God is the initiator of it, right? Salvation that comes to us in eternity is God's idea. It's not something that human beings have come up with, that human wisdom has come up with. God saw our predicament, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. God saw our predicament, and it was his idea, his initiative to bring us rescue. He wasn't responding just to the pleas of us and the the cries of us and then coming up with an idea to save us. He was the one who initiated it. He was the one who devised our very plan of salvation. The story of our salvation is not some haphazard story, right? That God just put some shoddy plan together and has to revise it. God knew before he said, let there be light. God knew that he would send his son to be crushed in our place and to be raised for us. God knew how he would rescue us from the very beginning. So God devises the plan. You see that right from the beginning. 
But what you see in the bulk of this text is that God then communicates the plan. Uh, he, he speaks it to Noah, right? A rescue plan is no good if it's secret, right? That, that is obvious. But if, uh, if uh, somebody has a plan of how they can rescue people and things they might even need to do in response and it's never communicated, it's never said to them, it does no good just staying in the mind of the divisor of it. Right? It has to be spoken. It has to be communicated. And God does just that here in this text. He, he speaks. He communicates to Noah, telling him what the plan is. And so I want to walk through this for a little bit, the heart of this text this morning. And the communication kind of comes in two phases. I don't know if you noticed that, but it comes in verses 13 through 21. Uh, this, this first wave of communication where God is basically saying, you need to build an ark, and this is how to do it. Like, build the ark. And then there's a second wave of communication as we get into chapter 7 that's much closer in time to when the flood is about to come, a a week out. And God then, instead of saying, build the ark, the ark's already been built, it seems, by that time. Now he's telling him, enter into it. Like, go. it's time to go into the ark. Uh, So build it is the first wave. Enter it is the second. So what does he say in this first wave of telling Noah to build the ark? It starts in verse 13. And I appreciate how God begins because God actually starts with the bad news, right? As a side note, if you ever have to be the bearer of bad news to people, it is always best to do like what the Lord does here and just bring the blunt, hard truth right at the start. Like don't dance around it. Don't kind of meander toward it. Say the hard thing right at the start and then backtrack from there, and that's exactly what God does here. He starts, verse 13, the first thing he says to Noah, and just imagine being Noah hearing this. God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Can you imagine hearing that? That that was literally said to him. Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, and Noah would have known what that meant. God's not mancing words here, right? He's saying, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. But he shares then pretty quickly on the heels that he starts with this heavy message, I am going to destroy life upon this planet. But then he gives uh, the reason for this judgment that's going to come, and he gives a little bit of a sight into the scope of this judgment. Right? That he tells him a little bit of the reason behind it. I'm, I'm, he's, he wants Noah to know he's not just doing this willy-nilly. He's not just doing this out of a knee-jerk reaction. He tells him, like we already saw, the earth is filled with violence, Noah. Like you see it. Like you know it in your, your corner of the earth. You see the corruption that is out there, right? He wants Noah to know that, that this flood, this horrible thing that's about to sweep over the earth is warranted. That is just, that it's not an overkill, that it's not a a reaction that is is going too far. God never goes too far, right? He, He wants Noah to know that this is warranted. So he tells him the reason for the judgment to come. And maybe more hauntingly, he tells him the scope of what's about to be done, right? A few different times in here, so we would never mistake it, and Noah wouldn't mistake it. He tells him in verses 13 and 17 that all flesh is about to be destroyed, right? In verse 17, he tells them that destruction is going to come upon everything. The end of 17, everything that is on earth shall die, right? 
In verse 4 of chapter 7, he says this again. He says, uh, every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So there's every, everything, all. These things said again and again. This isn't just some of the earth, some of the people, some of the living creatures. It is all of them. And this would have, I think, blown Noah's mind to try to even fathom, but God wants it to set into him. He wants him to feel the weight of this, of what is about to take place. It's like this divine weather forecast that is haunting, where he's saying there's going to be 40 days of rain. There's going to be this unprecedented flood that is going to destroy everything on this planet. And some try, we'll talk about this more next week, some try to argue that this is describing what maybe you would call like a regional flood, that it's a part of the world, but maybe not all the known world. And I understand some of where they're trying to come from because I don't think Moses, and I mean Moses now, would have had an idea of the earth as a sphere, things like that. Like we think of the earth, we know of North America, and we know all these, like we know these things. But because they didn't know that doesn't lessen the scope of what God is saying. Like he, he's saying the earth is shot through with corruption and violence and I'm going to destroy all of it. All of the living creatures upon it. So he gives them this bad news and it's haunting. I would encourage you sometime to let that sink into what is being described here. Because sometimes Noah's Ark is depicted with these cute giraffes with their heads poking out of the top of the ark. It was none of that. Like, this would have been horrible to hear. Noah is probably weeping. I'd imagine hearing this, like, what? Like, how is this going to be? Like, he's trusting God's heart, but how can this be? Like, surely, no. But we don't hear him pushing back. He, he's not telling him, no, God, stop. But it would have, I think, haunted him to hear this and to know what was coming. So he gives him this bad news, but he gives him this good news as well, right? He's going to bring the flood, but he's going to give the boat too. Right? He, he's going to bring the waters, but he's going to give the ark as well. And so he, as he's giving him this horrible news about the flood to come, he says in verse 14, and I think this one word would have, have given Noah some comfort. In verse 14, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Because like, he would have just heard, man, judgment is coming on everything. But God's saying, hey, there's going to be some way of escape for yourself. Like You're going to construct it, but you need to make this ark, right? And this, it's, note that it's an ark, not a boat. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. This was like a floating box, basically, right? Uh, we know later the Ark of the Covenant is like this box that would contain things. This was like a gigantic box that was cont- to contain these living creatures. It's not some like fun floating zoo. Like it's a life raft. A gigantic life raft that he tells Noah to build. And he tells him the material to use, right? He tells him to use gopher wood, which we know pretty much nothing about, uh, in verse 14. Uh, But he tells him to put pitch on the inside and outside, almost like tar, to to fill in the gaps to make it it able to float, to be buoyant, right? So he tells him the materials. He tells him the dimensions to make it. Uh, He uses the measurement of cubits which is about 18 inches or so. So if we think in modern terms uh, of feet, this would have been about like 450 feet long. It's like a football field and a half, if that's helpful, I think, if I'm doing quick math right. Uh, And then 75 feet wide, 40-some, 45 
feet tall, massive, right? If some of you have been to Kentucky to Answers in Genesis and the ark that they, replica they've constructed, think that if you've been there. That was the, the size of this, uh, this ship, this ark more accurately, right? But then what was implied in the make yourself an ark is more directly stated that there is going to be rescue for you, Noah. You see that in verse 18, right? He says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, or your wife, your sons' wives with you, right? And then he tells them of animals to bring on with them. And this is the first mention of a covenant explicitly in the Bible. Uh, there will be more to come. Uh, but this is the first mention of this relationship uh, of, of promise and pledge and oaths and, and a, a bond relationally between two parties where, where agreements are made. And God is saying the agreement is, I will bring you through. Like, I will bring you through this flood. You bring these animals on, bring your family on, I will bring you through. I will keep you alive. That's how verse 19 states it. I will keep them alive with you. Right? And so there's this mercy, this rescue that God promises to provide through the means of this ark. And so that's the first wave of communication. The second one comes in chapter 7, right? Where now, uh, seemingly years later, uh, as it gets much closer, probably decades later, we don't know the exact chronology of it, but as the flood gets closer, uh, what the start of chapter 7 records for us is this, uh, this communication from God that now it's time to enter. Now it's time to actually go into this ark, right, that you've constructed. And he, interestingly, he gives him a, like a seven-day warning. I don't think that's coincidental because it's kind of like an undoing of chapter one, right, that started with water and then things were cleared. This is like a, a getting ready for the reversal of that, like a covering back of water, and he gives them a little bit more detail about the animals. This isn't a contradiction. I don't have time to fully explain this, but he tells them that of the clean animals, which is interesting, they had a category even of that. This is way before Mount Sinai, right? But he tells them of these clean animals to bring seven pairs rather than two. Uh, I think in some ways that would have been this conjecture, but in some ways to have enough for sacrifice when they come off of the ark, and then also for consumption, because we're told after the flood that they are allowed now to eat certain types of animals. And so there would have been a need for more of them as Noah and his family disembark. We'll see that in a few weeks from now. But God has communicated, he communicates his plan, his rescue plan to Noah, right? And the good news for us is that as we think of God's rescue plan for us, God has communicated it to us as well, right? He hasn't just come up with it and left it in his own head. He has clearly communicated to each of us and to all humanity the means of escape, the means of rescue that we can have from the judgment to come, right? He has told us, God has told us the bad news. He's clearly communicated that to us, that, that judgment is coming. Justly, judgment is coming upon humanity and upon this earth and upon individuals. That judgment is coming. He's told us the bad news, but praise God, he has also told us the good news, that there is rescue that can come not through a boat, but through his son, Jesus Christ. And that those who are united with him, those who enter into him by faith can be spared, can be rescued from that judgment to come. And God has not been secretive about this. He has, he has shown it in the crucifixion of Christ, 
right? And he showed it in the empty tomb of Christ. He's recorded it in the scriptures to be disseminated throughout the world. He's put it on our tongues and hearts uh, to be able to, to speak it to people. God is not secretive about his rescue plan. He wants people to know it, right? He, he, he doesn't hold it close to the vest. He wants people to know of his mercy as much as of his justice, right? So God has communicated this to us, and I'll more fully communicate that here in just a moment. But I want to show you the last feature of this plan uh, in this text today is that it's not just seeing what God does, what God says, but seeing what Noah does. What we see at two points in this text is that Noah actually follows the plan, right? God, he came up with it, he devised it, God communicated it, and what we see is that Noah then follows it. And you see almost verbatim statements in chapter 6, verse 22, right? And then chapter 7, verse 5. Right? There are these just parallel statements at the end of those two waves of communication, the one that was early on and the one that's closer in time. We see essentially this same phrase that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. That the, the, the message that was brought by God, these commands that were given to build the ark and then to enter it, Noah actually did it. Noah actually obeyed. And though we don't hear Noah's voice here, like we do see his faith in action, right? I want you to contemplate for just a moment what sort of faith it would have taken for Noah to actually do these things, for him to actually construct this ark, and then him to actually enter into it, right? What faith this would have taken for Noah. First, think of his faith even in building this boat. We are just given like a skeleton description here. I wish we could know more about this because it's fascinating for me to think, how did he do this? Like, How did he actually construct this? And we can conjecture, we can guess, we can speculate. But what is said here, very matter-of-factly, is Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him, right? He constructed this thing. I don't know how, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but he spent, no doubt, decades of his life constructing this ark, constructing this massive life raft of sorts. Think of the finance, think of the time this would have taken for this man. Think, perhaps, we don't know much about this, but perhaps the mockery that he would have potentially experienced from people of like, hey, when's that storm coming, Noah? Like, we don't, we don't know what was said by his peers, but we could imagine uh, just the cost that would have taken, the faith it would have taken for Noah just day by day, month by month, year by year to keep constructing more and more of this ark based purely on the word of God, that this judgment is going to come and you're going to need this thing. Like, this is my plan, and Noah faithfully acts it. And then he had faith to enter the boat, right, at the, the end of today's text. And we'll see God shut them into it next Sunday, which is a glorious, uh, haunting thing at the same time. But the faith to enter this boat, right, it's one thing to build it. It's another when you start to, to see the storm, or they wouldn't have heard it because he makes them go in days before, but, but when you know it's imminent to say, I'm not actually just going to uh, theoretically trust this and build this, but I'm actually going to get into it, right? There's sometimes we build stuff that we'll be fine with other people <laughs> testing out and we aren't necessarily willing to get into it ourselves. Noah is, has faith to enter the boat, not because I think he thinks he was a good craftsman, right, or that the pitch will hold or that, that whatever but that he had confidence in the God who had told him to build it, that God would carry him through whatever flood he was about to unleash, right? He trusted not just that boat. 
He trusted the God who had told him to build it, right? And so in summary, what, what we see, the author of Hebrews even says this of Noah. He described it this way. Noah's faith to actually obey and to follow through on the plan. The author of Hebrews said this, that by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So Noah did this not just out of sheer obedience, but out of faith in his God that led him to obedience. So he constructs it, he enters into it, right? He obeys, he follows the plan. I want to bring this to bear upon you and upon us. I think what relevance does this story, this obedience of Noah have upon us? What does this ark, what does this boat, this rescue have to do with us? And I take my cues here from Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus, as he got close to his time of crucifixion, uh, he actually talked about Noah. He talked about the days of Noah. And he had a particular thing he was wanting to communicate about the story of Noah and what it was, the effect it was supposed to have upon the people of God. And you can look at these up yourselves. Uh, the parallel accounts appear in Matthew 24. So even just in the number there, if you know the story, it's getting closer to his crucifixion and death, right? But also in Luke 17, uh, there's very similar accounts. And I think up on the screen, I'll have at least a couple sentences of what's recorded for us on the tongue of Jesus in Matthew 24. He said this, he said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's talking about himself, like when someday he will return. He says, so as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he says a few other things, but then if you fast forward to verse 44, he says this, he says, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So as Jesus knew of this story of Noah, and as he brings it to bear on his contemporaries and recorded for us who follow, he looks at the story of Noah, and what he is saying is that those people other than Noah were not ready for the flood. They were not ready for the judgment of God. They had no hope to make it through that judgment. They were not ready for it. And what Jesus is saying, and he says it more directly in, other, in the rest of that text and other places, Jesus is saying, there is judgment that is coming again that is worse than that flood, that, that is more universal in scope, more eternal in its effect than that flood was. And he's saying, and people must be ready for it. Like there's preparation that needs to happen for it and that can happen for it. That we don't just have to be left unaware and surprised. There's preparation for that judgment that is to come. He says, you also must be ready for it. Implied in that is it is coming. You must be ready for it. There's a judgment to come worse than the flood. Read 2 Peter 3 sometime. Uh, there's this whole chapter where the Apostle Peter is talking about this. How there's going to be this judgment of fire someday. God pledges after this flood to never destroy the world by water again. But he didn't promise to never destroy it. Right? And, and Peter is saying there is judgment that is going to come at the return of our Savior Jesus. And we must be ready for it. We must be ready uh, for the day of that judgment. And so what I, I want you to think about is are you ready for that day of judgment? I want you to seriously in the depths of your soul think about that. Like, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Because he has said when he comes back, it is to judge, right? 
On the other side of that judgment, there's this institution of the new earth and the the eternal state of his people, but there will be a great judgment of all human beings when he returns. And there's just judgment of God that will come down upon sinners through Christ when he returns. And it will make this flood look like child's play. Like because it will be eternal in scope, eternal in its effect, right? Praise God, unlike Noah, we don't have to build our own lifeboat, right? You can't build your own lifeboat to make it through that thing. Like when God's judgment comes down on that day at the return of Christ, you have no hope of bringing anything to the table that will get you through it on your own. Of constructing some ark of good works or ark of I tried hard or ark of I'm sorry God or whatever excuses you may or give or whatever efforts you may put forth as evidence before God. You cannot build your own lifeboat to make it through that judgment to come. But Praise God, he has already built a vessel for us, right? He has provided a vessel in which and by which we can make it through that judgment. And it's not a boat, and it's not an ark, it's not a ship, it's not a fire shield, it's not whatever clever things we may want to come up with, it is a person, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is this ark uh, that we can enter into that can protect us from the wrath of God that will come down upon humanity. And that is our only hope of escape, is our only hope of making it through that judgment is that we are found in Christ, that we are inside of him. Not standing before God on our own like, hey, bring it on, but that we come before his just judgment in Christ, Right? And we can know, when Noah got onto this ship, he trusted God, but he didn't know if that ship could float, right? It's not like he could test run it, right, to see, is this thing going to hold? Is the pitch going to hold? He, in faith, was trusting that this boat would work. But guess what? When we look at the ark of Jesus, we know it's seaworthy, right? Like, we know it can resist and, and, and take the judgment of God because it's already happened, Like the judgment of God in some ways is future that will come down at the return of Jesus, but God's judgment has already come down upon humanity in one other place, and it's not at the ark, it's at the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross of Jesus, what was happening is the sins of God's people were laid upon Christ, and God's wrath rained down upon him fully. Like 100% rained down upon Jesus and he bore it for us. He suffered the full consequence, the full weight that we deserve to come down upon us for our sin. He bore it. So much so that his body was crushed and put to death and he was laid in a tomb. Like he bore it fully. So when, when he's raised from the dead, God is showing us then that, hey, he bore it all and he emerged on the other side of it. Just like Noah made it out of the ark, Jesus made it through the wrath of God. He endured all of it and then God raised him back up from the dead never to die again. And now he invites us as the resurrected Jesus. He says, come to me, like come in me, so to speak. Come enter into me because the wrath of God will come again. And when it does come upon humanity, you better be found in me. And I've already endured the wrath of God for you. Uh, So you have nothing to fear when the judgment of God comes down at the end of time. And when I return, it will not be to crush you. It will be to spare you and to save you and to usher you into this eternal kingdom. Right? We know that the ark of Christ is seaworthy. 
right? And when we enter into him, when we enter into him and join him, we don't enter, I was thinking of this, we don't enter into him like Noah entered into this ark. We enter into him like Noah's family entered into the ark, right? Noah found favor with God, and his family's kind of, no shame to them, but kind of riding his coattails, right? They're allowed to go in there because Noah's in there, right? And the same is true of us. If we're going to be spared of God's judgment, it's not because we just ourselves have found favor with God, but because Christ has found favor with God, and we're with him. And that is the good news of the gospel, that you yourself can be ready for God's judgment. And you don't have to wait till it comes. You can enter into the ark of Christ today. Like you can receive him by faith today, be joined with him today, and have confidence that you never, ever need to fear the judgment of God again. So are you ready for yourself for this? Are you ready yourself for that judgment day? And the last thing I would say is, are you helping others get ready for that judgment day? Because it is coming. But the judgment of God is coming upon humanity. It is. And we have this rescue plan communicated to us. Are we communicating it to others? Are we telling people about it? Are we telling our kids about it? Are we telling our neighbors about it? Are we telling our wayward children about it? Are we telling our coworkers about it? Are we going to the nations where people cannot even yet hear of it and telling them about it? Are we doing anything to help people prepare for that day of judgment? Are we just letting them come and face it on their own? Because somebody came and told us about the ark of Jesus, right? And said, friend, you can get on. And we did. But we have a responsibility to tell more people, hey, the door is still open. Like the the door is open to this ark. Like, come on, because judgment is coming. But you can still enter by the grace of God. We have a responsibility. We can't change hearts. We can't drag them into it, but we can tell them of the judgment to come. And they may look at us like we're fools, but we have a responsibility to tell them. And we can tell them the means of escape. Say, God, mercifully, he doesn't hate you. Like, he loves you so much that he's offering you a way of escape, offering you a way through this judgment to come. Will you not join me in the ark of Christ? Will you come and join me in it? If they are destroyed on that final day, may it not be because we didn't tell them about Christ. May it not be because we withheld that information from them, but may we tell them the good news of Jesus. So are we prepared for the day of God's judgment? Often in life, uh, we, anytime we encounter rescue plans, they're usually kind of joke things to us, right? Like when we get on a flight and they're telling us, in the event that your plane crashes and you land on the water, you'll need to get out this door and go on the, and we, it's just like in one ear and out the other, like, yeah, I'm never going to need that. Thanks for the escape plan. Thanks for the rescue plan. We just zone out or when we're a kid, when I was a kid and they were telling us, about fire drills at school and in the event of a fire you need to go this way I was like whatever I'm not going to need to know this I'll just uh, goof around or whatever Uh, we don't take rescue plans seriously because we think the threat is not real this threat is sure right the wrath of God is coming but the mercy of God is available to us, right? The rescue of God is available to us. You need rescue from the wrath of God. Others need rescue from the wrath of God, and he provides it through his son, Jesus. And so may we prepare our own hearts. May we help prepare the hearts and the souls of others. God has devised a rescue plan. He's communicated it. Will you follow it? I want to pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, we are grateful for your mercy to us. It 
haunts us to see ourselves in Moses' contemporaries. May we not just see ourselves as a righteous Noah who is unique and different from the sinners of this earth, but may we see ourselves uh, in those masses of people who were rebels against you, who deserved judgment. But God, thank you for the image of this ark, the picture that it is of us, or to us, of your salvation, your compassion upon us. God, I pray for those of us who have already entered the ark of Christ, so to speak, that our gratefulness would ever grow, that we would be sure of the judgment to come and that that would be, make us grow in gratefulness and awe and wonder uh, that, that you have seen fit to allow us to enter into your son and to be spared from it. God, for those in the room who have yet to place their faith in Christ, I pray that today would be a day of reckoning for them where they realize what is at stake. And where they know that the the God before whom they should be afraid of that day of judgment, that they can come to you as a loving father, as as a merciful father who is glad to receive them back, who's initiated this plan, who's not reluctantly offering it to them, but is glad to offer it to them. And may they today follow your plan, not by trying to construct their own ark, but by entering the one that you have provided in the person of Christ. God, be honored in how we sing. Uh, We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.